with us last Sunday, you know that we have uh, been going from, we started with the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be going through verses 4 through 6. If you have last week's outline, you can use those as well, but uh, there's just a little bit of a change that has been done. Um, anyways, um, uh, otherwise you have a, you also have your, this week's outline. We didn't get through the whole outline. There were, there was a lot of things that uh, we were trying to get across and trying to at least help us to see that in this portion of scripture, uh, and when we start talking about predestination, predestination seems to be one of those topics that, well, it, it just, it, it just seems to be difficult for some to, to grasp and to, and to get a hold of. And so it's going to take us a little while to get through this. And as you know, we were also in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. So if you want to go turn there and put your finger on there, we'll go back and forth uh, to look at both of these chapters, uh, these books. Because Paul really just talks about, especially in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And as the purpose of our salvation, our salvation is to, well, to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. And the process is the what we call the golden chain of salvation and how it is that he has, uh, well, predestined you. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that, how he's foreknown you, how he's predestined you, how he's called you, how he's glorified you, uh, sanctified you, and then how he's glorified you. And so we are right now in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 4 and 6. Let me go ahead and read that. We're going to jump into um, this portion of Scripture and then continue on through the rest of uh, the message. I'm going to read this from 4 to 6. Lead us in the word of prayer. And then just bring some insight as to what uh, Paul has is, is given us here. But, um, well, I'm going to start in verse 3 since that's where the, the natural break is at. And as I mentioned uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago when I read through this, from verse, verses 3 to the 16, uh, 15, excuse me, they, it's just one long continuous sentence. And, and Paul is, at, you know, he, the, we've added a lot of periods. We added one period and a lot of commas and... And so it's, it's Paul just going on. He's really excited about how we have come to know who Jesus Christ is, how he has come to know us, and, and how it is that he's put this all together. If you remember correctly, we are in, uh, he's in prison at this time. He's under house arrest. He's not being punished like you would a regular prisoner, but he, he doesn't have the liberty to roam. And so he, he's at this point writing this letter as, as well as uh, uh, a couple other letters as well to to other people, and then he writes to the uh, uh, Timothy to in the and Titus called the pastoral epistles. But but he's had time to reflect. He's his ministry is now closer to the end, and he I don't know if he knows this or not, but I'm sure he had some inclination, some idea that pretty soon, within two years, he will uh, be executed, beheaded, as tradition has it. But he's had the opportunity to reflect back on his life, reflect back on what God has been doing, and take this message of uh, the riches of God's grace. And this is what uh, we've entitled the book of Ephesians, the riches of God's grace, and how wonderful and great and powerful his riches are. And so it is amazing to see this. But let me go ahead and read from verses 3 in chapter 1 to verse 6. Lead us in a word of prayer, then we'll come back to it. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of Scripture as we have been working through it and taking it in and understanding, seeing your word and what it means for us. I thank you for people like Paul and for Timothy and those that uh, strenuously just wanted to get to know you and, and were, were, drive, were driven by your Holy Spirit to be able to be inspired and write these words down so that we can have them today. So, Father, we thank you once again just for this time. Lead us in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Even as he chose us, Paul says, 
in him before the foundations of the world. We have been chosen. You have been chosen. Those that are elect, the predestined, those that have been called by God have been chosen from the beginning of the foundations of the world. The foundations of the world is one of those things that, well, when did that begin? Well, before time began, before he even formed the world. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, Jesus says, or John says, that, that he was instructed to write these things down for those things that were going to happen. And those that are not in the book of life from the foundations of the world. And if their name is not written in the book of life, they will be under the wrath of God. And so there's this book that God had preordained, set aside, and Paul is already showing us that this book is, is real, it's there. And it's been done since from the beginning of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if you know anything about yourself, uh, if you know anything about me, we are not holy. We are not blameless. We know that there is sin within our life. But because of God's grace and that how he imputed his righteousness upon us, we have been made holy. We have been set apart. We've been set apart and we are blameless now in his sight. And we are blameless. And in, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to to the purpose of his will, not my will, but his will, not the church's will, not anybody else's will, but God's will. And we're going to go back to Romans chapter 8 here in just a bit and show us what his purpose is, what his purpose and his will has always been. And his purpose and his will has always been to conform us to the likeness of his son. And when we look at this picture of adoption, when we look at the adoption in itself and the process uh, of how it happens. And for some people today, adoption seems to carry that second class status in a family. You know, well, I mean, I was born into the family, but you, you know, they had to go out and rescue you and bring you in. But, but this is one of the richest and most beautiful passages in all scripture. When you understand the process of adoption, using the figure of adoption, Paul explains the believer's intimate and permanent relationship to God as a beloved child. Christians being adopted into the family of God, when we understand how serious and complicated a step took to, for, in the Roman Empire on how to adopt a child and how to hand over a child into adoption, when we understand the depths of this, it, it, it'll, just, it'll just blow you away. Now, some of you probably understand and know that, that it's a process, it's a long process to adopt a child in today's world. But back in the Roman days, adoption was more serious and more difficult, by, and it was difficult and it was a hard process because of the, the patria potesta, meaning the power of the father or the father's sovereign power over his family. See, the father's power had a lot to do with the son. You, you were not a man until the father said you were a man. It didn't matter if you were 15, 16, 18, 21. Until the father declared you to be a man and to be on your own, he had sole authority. He had sole power. He can discard you. He can do whatever he wanted to. And it's interesting how we've come full circle in that same type of family authority. Where if a child is not wanted, it can be discarded. It can be taken away. But this, this whole process, is, it's, it's a process that, that is, is, it, it, is, it, it brings to light as far as how God has adopted us. And Paul is very keen on all this. And, and the first step, one of the first steps was known as mancipatio, where we get our word emancipation, the transfer of ownership. And it was carried out by a symbolic sale in which copper and scales were used symbolically. And three times this symbolism of, of sale was done in the process of... Of, and in the witnesses of seven people. Twice the father would sell the person of the son to the person that now wants to have the patria potesta, the father's authority, and then twice it would be sold back to the father. The third time the transfer had taken place and that was complete. And it was, it was a process and it was a, a difficult process. It wasn't just, you know, symbolically passing back and forth these scales. But it was a process that was done within this legal right, this legal way of being able to transfer that ownership. And, and, and the consequences of it, I think, is probably more of what Paul is trying to look at. The consequences of adoption were more significant for us and for him. As a matter of fact, 
the very first thing that a uh, few of the consequences, but one of, the, one of them is the adopted person lost all rights to his old family. The old is gone. He lost all rights to who he used to be, gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. The second thing was he became heir to his, to his father's new estate. All that the son had, all that the father has, now belonged to the new heir. The new has come. The old is gone, the new has come. Even if other sons and, uh, were born afterward, it did not affect his rights. He was co-heir with them, and no one could deny him those rights. Now you start to see a little bit about what Paul has been talking about, and how we are co-heirs with Christ, and how everything that Christ has, has been given to me, and my sin has been passed over to him. Uh, a third thing in the law is that the old and adopted person was commonly wiped out. Everything about that person was pushed back. His debt was wiped out. His Everything was canceled. He was regarded as a new person entering into a new life. He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He is a new creation in that father's authority. And in the fourth thing, in the eyes of the law, he is absolutely the son of this new father. Another picture that Paul had also is that, that God's spirit witnesses our spirit that we are really the children of God. And in the adoption ceremony, it was carried out in the presence of seven witnesses. In the event that the father would pass away, one of the seven witnesses would come up and say, no, no, I, I witnessed it. We saw it. And it is by law that this is a legitimate son. The Holy Spirit himself, he is our witness God says that, that he is the witness to our spirit being adopted into what uh, God has done through Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying it is the Holy Spirit who is the witness to our adoption. Every step of the Roman adoption process was meaningful in the mind of Paul. When he transferred the picture to our adoption to the family of God, once we were in the absolute control of our sinful human nature, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves and we were set free. The book of Galatians talks about this is what you used to be. You used to be slaves. Why do you want to go back there? You are now adopted. You can call God Abba, Father. Which, by the way, I, I have a very hard time with those that call upon God as Abba, Father. Not in the sense of what the biblical sense means. We, we have a very high view of God. In, in here in our church. And, and what that means is we, we don't come to God just haphazardly. We don't come to God in such a way that, uh, you know, it's, hey, hey, pops, or hey, dad, or hey, old man, uh, as, as some people do. You know, I, I hear people, I'm going to my daddy. I'm going to my daddy and ask him because, and when they say that to me, I says, you know, you still talk to your dad? And I says, yeah, I talk to him every day. And they're talking about God himself, where we, we've lowered him to this relationship, which we do have. But there has to be reference. I, I'm conflicted on how people respond or approach God in that sense. But we do have that ability to call him Abba. And, and you know, as, as probably heard from before, that, that Abba is, is Papi or Daddy. It's a term of endearment. But yet, there needs to be a reference because God is God. And yes, we have this ability to come before him. Even when Jesus Christ taught his disciples how to pray. Well, here's how you do it. So you say, our father. Whoa, wait a minute. We can call him father. We know him as the father of lights. We know him as the father of all creation. But I can say he's my father. Yes, because you have this intimate relationship to him. You can call him Abba father. He is your dad. He is your father, but don't treat him with disrespect. Whatever you, he's not the man upstairs. He's not pops. He's not your old man. He's not the guy, you know, that, that is rocking and drooling. He's, he's God. And we still approach him as such. And the old life has no more rights over us. God has absolute right now. That when we were children of the devil, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the reason you don't understand what I'm saying is because you are children of Satan. You're children of the devil. And, and my sheep, they hear my voice. My sheep, they know who I am. And so this new life with God and becoming heirs of all his riches, if, if that is because we become joint heirs with Christ. This is why Ephesians is such a beautiful book. 
and how rich it is with what God has done for us and what we have as believers. Whatever Christ inherits, well, we also inherit as well. It was Paul's picture that when the people became Christians, they entered into the very family of God. They did nothing to deserve it. It was, it was nothing that I did, not because of who I am, not because of the gifts I have, not because of anything. It's all because he wanted to adopt me. He wanted to bring me into his family. God, the great father, in his amazing love and mercy, has taken lost, helpless, poverty-stricken, debt-laden sinners. Then he adopted us into his own family so that the debts can be canceled and the glory inherited. We need to remember that the term adoption does not fully illustrate God's work of salvation. Yes, he's brought us in. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we're adopted. But we're also cleansed from sin. We're also saved from its penalty of death. We're also spiritually reborn. We are foreknown in love, predestined from the creation of the world, called into salvation, justified as if I'd never sinned, and ultimately glorified into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But those who are saved by this faith, their, their faith, in Jesus Christ and by the work of his grace have no higher title than that of an adopted child. That title is the highest title, I would believe, that, that could explain who we are when you understand the process that it takes in the Roman world and the process that God took to adopt us. Because once it's done, it's binding, and there's nothing else that can happen. You can forsake your natural children, but you cannot forsake an adopted child. This is why the doctrine of the pers uh, perseverance of the saints is so important. This doctrine of the perseverance, we are saved, and you cannot lose your salvation. We cannot lose it. It cannot be taken away. We cannot put it on the shelf. We are no longer and never can be under God's condemnation because we are in the family of God. That's it. I guess we can go home now. <laughs> no, there's more, <laughs> and there's more. We have been placed in this communion in God's family, we have been placed solidly within God's family and, and we inherit everything that Jesus Christ has. And we can't lose that. That can't be taken away. And as a believer, for those of you that have come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and have grasped that, I, I beg you, I beseech you to hold on to that. And, and if you have not yet understood that whole process on how that helps, uh, how, that, how that brings you closer to him, I beg you just to repent. Repent and believe. Because that is the call. When you understand that this is what God has done for you, repent. It's not, it's not a suggestion. It's not raising up your hand and making a decision. I'm not going to ask you to decide. I'm not going to try to woo you and to come in. You hear this and it cuts your heart. Repent. That's the bottom line. And that's how God had intended it from the very beginning. Now, let's go over to Romans chapter 8. Because uh, this is where we left off last week. In Romans chapter 8 verses 29. So we can get the full picture of the, the, the golden chain of salvation. In your outlines, those who love God, he foreknew. Number one, those who love God, he foreknew. We cannot love God in our own initiative. We cannot love God by ourselves. Love from God has to come from God. You see... I'm going to have you go back to Ephesians. I forgot to mention in chapter 2. In chapter 2 in Ephesians, it says this. You were dead in your trespass and sin. A dead person cannot love anybody in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. You were following a different father. You had a different authority. You had a different patria, pat, uh, patria patria. And he was the, the authority over your body, over your life. He was the one until you were adopted and pulled out of there. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. It was our, our flesh that was leading us, the passions of what we want to, to uh, 
to be able to to be able to, to grab onto the flesh and 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 do the things that the flesh is called us to do, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And by nature, we were all children of wrath. And if you go down to verse 12, it says, remember that you were at that time strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. No hope, dead, strangers, alienated, set apart, uh, we were God's enemies, it says in other places as well. We, we, we had nothing, we, not, we wanted nothing to do with God himself. There is no love between me and God at that time prior to Jesus Christ. That idea of being able to pick or choose God is, is, is not a biblical concept. Because we're dead. We're dead to our trespasses and sins. It is God who wakes us up, as I mentioned last week. Last week, when, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know that you were a man that comes from God because no one can do the things that you are doing. And Jesus says to him, verily, verily, I say unto you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In other words, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, spiritually born. And just like your natural birth, which you had no contribution, you had no idea, you had no way of telling your parents when you were going to be born, how you were going to be born, in what condition you were going to be born. You had no contribution to your physical birth. You have no contribution to your spiritual birth. You cannot see the kingdom of God until you're born again. You are born again, and then you can see the kingdom of God. You are saved, and then you, are, you, you ask for repentance. You repent. God quickens you, he wakes you up, he chooses you, and I'm going to show you here in just a little bit in Romans chapter 8 on how that works, how that the golden chain of, um, the golden chain of salvation works. In chapter 8, going back to verse 8, 28, I'm sorry, uh, of Romans, Romans 8, 28, he says, uh, he says this, and we know that for those who love God, you see, those who love God have already been foreknown. For those who love God, all things work together for good. This verse has been taken out of context sometimes and saying, okay, everything that's happening around my life, it's going to come out better. Uh, you know, it's, it's for a better purpose, a bigger purpose. I lost this job, I'm going to get a better job. If I'm, 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 I'm not healthy now, then I'm going to get healthier later. Something's going to happen. But it's not about our present situation because this good that God is talking about for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, God, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and this is the purpose of salvation, to be conformed to the image of his son. At the end of this, uh, at the end of verse 30, it says, he also glorified. The whole purpose of this is to get us to the point where we've become conformed to the likeness of Christ and be glorified. That is the end goal. And the process, everything that's working together for good is to that goal. It is to that, that, that place, that, that, that where we're, we're heading to. Uh, if you look at verse 18, up on top of uh, chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul starts it off by saying, you are going to a place of glory. And everything that you're experiencing right now has nothing in comparison to what you have coming in glory. Which is for another message. But right now... Paul has said this, look, he foreknew you. And we talked about this last week. And I'm very briefly just going to mention to you. It could mean, and it does mean foresight. That God foreknows everything that's going to happen. He can see down the corridors of history. And I heard one preacher one time explain it this way. That as we're walking through our life in history, and how you know if you're predestined or not is that as you're walking through this corridor of history, then what happens is you go through a door and uh, maybe you'll go through that door. And, and when you walk through and you close the door and on the other side, it says predestined. That's how it is that you decide to walk through that door. Other people have put it this way, that God, as he goes down through history, he goes all the way down to the point in your life 
when you're going to get saved. And he realizes that you made the decision to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. Then he comes back to the beginning of the foundations of the world. And he says, this is my predestined. He is the one that's going to be uh, saved because he made that decision. Now, one of the things that that does is that the problem is that the doctrine is seriously flawed because man, wicked, ignorant, blind, unable to understand. The man without the spirit cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. They're spiritually discerned. We're dead in our trespasses is the word. I mean, that's, you know, we, we are uh, against the gospel. We are unable to comprehend God. You know, we have this iniquity who hates God. We, we, we don't want anything to do with God. And there's no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. And some of you will say, but, but, but I, I was searching. I was looking until finally God got a hold of me. And, and I found God as if God was lost. And I, I've said this many times before. I think that what happens is that people want the benefits of God. They desire the, the guilt being released from their life. The shame that, that sin carries upon their life. They want this, this freedom, this peace in their life that only God can give. And we've tried to fill that void with this world. And we realize that it's useless. It's futile. It cannot do anything for us. And we've heard that God has this everlasting joy and love and peace and, and patience. He's got this kindness. And God is such a good God. And I want that. Well, you know, the Bible says that you have to deny yourself. You can't follow Jesus Christ unless you deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. Well, I don't want that part. I, I want the part that Jesus says he'll give me, but I don't want to have to carry any cross. I don't want to have to sacrifice my life. I don't want to have to give up my friends, is what some people have said to me. I like my life the way it is, except for all this garbage. that I, Can God just take that away from me? And if he can do that for me, then great. I'll, I'll sign in. If God can give me all of that, and he can take away all my shame, my bitterness, my anger, my resentment, fix my family, fix my finances. If he can really do all of that and give me everything that I ask for. If he can do that for me, then fine. But I don't want nobody telling me what to do. I want God. I want to go to heaven. But some people, they don't want God to be there. You see, the Christian life is, Jesus said to us, he said to us from the very beginning, in this world, you will experience troubles. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And there's this, this uh, part of the suffering that we go through as we talked about the will of God. God's will is that we suffer. God's will is that we, we surrender. God's will is that we submit. And a few weeks ago, we talked about that on God's will. God's will is not, you know, okay, who does he want me to marry? What school does he want me to go to? What type of job that he wants me to have? You're not going to find those answers in the Bible. But there are things that God wants you to do that are his will. And one of them is to be a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. Lay yourself on the altar of sacrifice. Well, I don't want to do that. All I want, and people that say that are looking or searching for God are only searching and looking for the benefits of God. And it, there's a commitment that we have neglected to tell the sinner. There is this, this, one, uh, this, this thought that Jesus Christ is calling us to surrender, to get back away from all that old stuff. We are no longer under that, that father's authority. We are under now a different authority. This is where we find this freedom. And so when you talk about foreknowledge, that God, those, those whom God foreknew, yes, he knows who's going to make that decision. Yes, he's, he can see everything. He knows everything. And another way that people have looked at this is his foreordination. Well, God foreordained it to happen. Well, that's closer to what we're trying to get to. You know, and there is a foreordination. There is this uh, event that God is causing it to happen, is making it to happen, and is going to happen in your life if you are foreordained, if you're foreknown. But the point that I was trying to get across last Sunday was more to the effect of this foreknowing, this foreknowledge. And knowing in the Old Testament has always been this intimate relationship, has always been this intimate uh, union between a husband and a wife and how God intimately knows you and he knows me and he knows all of us. 
There is this foreknowledge, there is this foreordination, but more importantly, there is this foreknowing. As Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. As Cain knew his wife. As, uh, as all the Abraham knew his wife. And every one of these knowing are these intimate relationships that we have with our loved ones. As a matter of fact, one, uh, one example I used last week was when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he wanted to put her aside uh, quietly because he didn't want to cause any embarrassment or shame to her because he had not known her as of yet. It's not this understanding it's not information it's not just you know i didn't know you but but it's this intimate relationship that god has with us those that god loves those that god foreknew he knows you he knows those that are his and paul tells us in ephesians that this happened from the beginning of the world from the very foundations of the world in your outlines in first uh, corinthians 8 3 it says but if anyone loves god he is known by God. From a standpoint of cognition, you don't have to love God to be information. In his infinite mind, he knows everybody on the face of the planet. He knows you. He knows everybody. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said that he knows every hair on your head. He does. So why wouldn't he? Oh, okay, I, I know him now. But it's this intimate knowledge that he has. As a matter of fact, in another verse that I used last week was Matthew 7, when Jesus Christ says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Jesus knows who all these people are. Did we not do mighty works in your name? And in verse 23 in your outlines, it says, And then... I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's not information. It's not cognition. It's this relation. I didn't know you. You didn't have this relationship with me. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, but, but now that you have come to know God, you have this intimate relationship. You've come to know him now in that sense where he has pre-known you, predestined you, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Paul is saying you have this intimate relationship with him. And, and, and so Jesus continued to go with this vein. And he says in, in this vein of talking about this knowledge and this understanding and this intimate relationship as he has, as a shepherd has with the sheep. And he says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. You see shepherds all around you. You see how they tend their flock, how they name them, how they know them. And they know the wild ones. They know the, the, those they, they are within his pen. I am the good shepherd, he says. I know my own and my own know me. I know my own. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Well, of course he does. He knows you by name. He knows the hair on your head. But he knows this intimate knowledge, this foreknowledge. And salvation begins with the foreknowledge of God. With this foreknowing, this love relationship that he had with you before the foundations of the world. He says, that's the one I'm going to love. Not because... I was good looking, not because I was smart, not because of anything. As a matter of fact, uh, this last week, I'm, I'm telling my wife, you know, I just, I just, man, sometimes I, I just don't seem to be getting it. I don't, you know, things that are happening, you know, and, and, and she goes, well, you know, I just, you just need to know. And I go, what's that? She says, you're not qualified to be a pastor. <laughs> okay, babe. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. You're not. And that's why God uses you, because <laughs> you're not qualified. The moment you step up and start thinking you're qualified, you've lost it all. It's God who qualifies you. Thank you for straightening it out for me. We're not anything special, but God chose you in spite of your sin. Some, some people, it's hard for them to understand that, because for all intents and purposes, they grew up in a very godly home. They never really did bad stuff. They, they were always good 
young Christians going to church and doing all those things. Beloved, if the Bible is true, the Bible is true. We're all wicked sinners. All of us. We're all depraved. None of us can choose God on our own. He has to quicken you. And he quickens you because he foreknows you. Let's get on with this because the second one is just as important. Those he loves, he predestined. Those whom he loves, he predestines. I love God because he caused me to love him. He's able, he's given me that love. Prior to Jesus Christ, I didn't have that love. And because I love him, he foreknew me so that we can have that love relationship. And those whom he loves, he predestines. Once again, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is packed with a lot of stuff. And we're just going to kind of look at the predestination part. But as I mentioned earlier, the reason that God foreknew you and he predestined you and he called you is because he desires to conform you to the image of his son. That is his goal. That is the goal of salvation, to conform you. Jesus Christ is coming back for a bride. And his bride has to be spotless and clean. If you look at yourself in the mirror, and if I look, when I look at myself in the mirror, I am not spotless and clean. But by the grace of God, there go I. By the grace of God, as Paul says, I, I am a, a wretched sinner. And, and that's where I stand as well. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he has predestined me. He has saved me so that I can become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn. So that he might be the firstborn. When we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and these are in your outline for, uh, for, for, well, for easy uh, sake. But you can turn back there if you like. In Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in verse 5, he predestined us for the adoption of himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's love for the son caused him to choose us. God's profound love and what he desires for his son. He says, I'm going to get you your bride. And here she is. And he's set us apart and he predestined us because left to myself, I couldn't save myself. I can't get myself right with God. And I think many people understand that part. I believe that most believe that most understand that it is by grace that you're saved. And I know that many of you believe that, you know, I cannot earn my salvation. I cannot buy my way for salvation. I cannot work for my salvation. It's just the salvation part that a lot of people have a hard time with. And, and when you accept this and you understand this, how this works out, then it starts to make a little bit more sense as how it's how Paul has been talking about this from the very beginning. How Paul has been dealing with this from the very beginning. He marked this out. He set us apart. The word predestined, prohorizo. Horizo is where we get the word uh, horizon from. And it's a Greek term that says that it's marked out. Up to the horizon, this is marked out. And you have been marked out. God has marked you out by his counsel. By his magnificent counsel from the very foundations of the world, he marked you out and he said, this is mine. He is mine and he is not going anywhere. This is why you cannot lose what you cannot gain. God marked you out. Uh, and he started out with the predetermination to love you on the basis that he has marked you out. And, and, and that is just an amazing truth. In, in Acts chapter 4, uh, I don't think this is in your outlines, but in Acts chapter 4, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then in verse 28, it says, To do whatever your hand and your plan had marked out, predestined to take place. God has prohorizo, he's marked out things to take place. Everything that's going to take place, it's already been marked out. You have been marked out, is what Paul is saying. That you have been predestined. Number three, those who he marked out, those whom he predestined, he called. He called. Those whom he predestined, he called. Uh, 
I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'll explain it a little bit more as I, I go along here. When you see the word calling or called in the epistles, mainly in the epistles, when you see the word called, it's the call to salvation. Now, in the New Testament and other places, it'll, it'll, you'll have the calling of the 12 apostles. You'll have the calling of, the, the, of other people as well, how Jesus calls them to vocation, or as the Levites were called to, to be the priests. And, and so you'll see that calling. But every time that Paul talks about calling in the epistles, he's talking about salvation. And I'll explain that to you here in just a bit. Those, he, those whom he predestined, he also called. I, I've had people explain this to me before, at least try to, and say, well, look, this is the calling. This calling is your vocation. God called you. He calls people to this type of job. He called you to be a pastor. That's what he called you to do. And I have to look at this golden chain of salvation. I says, okay, what do you know about justification? Well, that's when Jesus Christ makes you right. He justifies you. So he called me to be a pastor, and then he justified me? See, justification is the next step. Justification is not one of many that, okay, we can do it this way. And there is a progression here for a specific purpose and a specific reason. Foreknew, predestined, then he called us. Calling is the salvific call that God calls out on your life at some point in time in history. Where you come to realize that you're a wretched sinner. Where you come to realize that there is nothing else that can save you. When you come to realize that you need a Savior. It's difficult to preach the gospel to those that believe they're righteous. This is why Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for those that know they need salvation. This is why the Pharisee was able to stand at the, at the altar, at the temple, and proclaim, Thank you, God, for not making me a woman or, or anything else or a slave or like this tax collector here. And where the tax collector says in Jesus' parable, Father, have mercy upon me. And Jesus even asked them, which one of them left their uh, justified? And they said, well, of course, the tax collector, because he recognized he recognized the sinfulness. And it is difficult to talk to people that have grown up in the church that believe they're good and show them, you need a Savior. Oh, I'm okay. I'm good. I don't need a Savior. But those that know and understand their wretchedness, they know it. And, and, all the, and when you come to that point, God finds you. And He orchestrates he orchestrates everything in his sovereign will. He orchestrates all these things that are taking place in his sovereignty to put you at a place where you need to be. And the gospel message is proclaimed and the gospel message penetrates your heart and you recognize that you're a sinner and you say, God, have mercy upon me. Have mercy on my soul. I am a wretched sinner. And that's where the Holy Spirit quickens your heart. He quickens your heart when you recognize, you, well, first of all, he quickens your heart. You're born again. You believe. And this is the part I was talking about earlier where we have a little bit of a confrontation sometimes. See, a lot of people say you have to believe first and then be born again. But as the scriptures teach us, we can't call out to God. You have to be born again. You have to be reborn. You have to be regenerated. There has to be salvation that comes for first, and then you repent. And then you come to a place of recognizing that you are a sinner, that you need God's mercy. A wretched sinner will not call out to God. We'll want the benefits of God, but we will not call out to God. And so that's why Paul says that all these things are working together for good. Now, you may, you may think in your mind that the, the inward call is not an outward call. That doesn't mean that all people who heard some preacher or heard some evangelist, that this inward call, this is a saving call, a redeeming call. As, as John chapter 6, verse 44 says in your outlines, no one, and this is no one, Jesus Christ saying, no one can come to me unless... The Father who sent me draws him. See, God has to wake you up, quicken you, bring you in, and then you can come to Jesus. And I will raise him up on the last day. When you do that, when you understand that, and you've been brought in, God brings you up, draws you to Jesus Christ, you repent and believe, you're there. 
You cannot lose that. Nobody gets lost in the shuffle. You can't jump off or jump out of God's hand. You can't do that. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Saints, not perfect, not pure. Saints, set apart. I believe we've discussed that quite a bit here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the setting apart of holiness. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul is referring to Esau and Jacob, the twins. The, younger will, the older will serve the younger. And he says, I'm, I'm calling out the younger one. He's the one I chose. He's the one I picked. He's the one I called. Not the other. But I chose this one. That's the one. In order, he says, that God's purpose of election might continue. And when he calls you, he calls you in order that the purpose of election might continue. Not because of what you've done. Not because of who you are. But because of him who calls. Over and over again, 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to this holy calling, not because of our works, but because of him, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1.9. Anytime you ever see the call in the epistles, it's the salvific call. 1 Peter 1.15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Salvation. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of the sinful light, out of the father of darkness, into his marvelous light. These excellencies. He began to move in your darkened heart. He began to move on your blackened mind. He began to move on your spiritual deadness. He began to awaken and quicken and give understanding. It is the Spirit of God that does that. That begins and moves within you. And you feel the conviction of sin. And when you've heard the gospel truth of the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the one who died for you. When you hear that, it, it you have... Well, I mean, that's, that's the other part of it. You have no choice but to surrender to His grace. His grace, which is irresistible. You, you see that. You sense that. You understand that. You are a wretched sinner. And His grace is so irresistible that when He offers it, He says, Yes, I believe. I repent and I believe. As John the Baptist said, Repent and believe. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, Repent. And believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Paul continues on with this vein of thought. Is, and there are many other verses that we can get into. But number four. Just to move on. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he called, he justified. So you start to see the progression. Of salvation. You're starting to see how it all works out. And in all the other verses that I've been quoting to you. And you'll see that you have been called, you have been predestined, you've been set apart from the foundations of the world. You have, been, you have been selected, you have been chosen, you are, you know, God has been choosing from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he chose uh, Israel. From the very beginning, he chose uh, Jacob. Uh, from the very beginning, over and over again, uh, you know, it's, you didn't choose me, I chose you, Jesus tells the twelve. Even though we know one of them was not chosen into salvation. That, again, is what we were talking about earlier. He, they were chosen for a profession, not salvation, uh, for, for an occupation. But those he saved, those he called, he justified. Justification, it's a legal term. It's a term of standing before the bar of God. And, and uh, you, you realize that you're not righteous, and I'm not righteous. And so Paul is saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm a chief sinner. I sin, I fail, I fall short. I, I don't love God per perfectly. You know, many of you say, I love God, but you cannot say that you love God perfectly every single second of your life. 
Because the, the commandment, the number one commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and also added in all your strength. You, you, you love God with everything that you have. And the moment your mind starts to wander, the moment your mind, my mind wanders quite a bit. I, I, I love my grandkids. I love my children. And, and when I start thinking about them, I'm no longer focused on God. And that becomes a sin of commission, of omission, excuse me. Because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And we can't. And the moment that I, I, I stray from that, then, then I become a sinner. But it's because of the justification that Jesus Christ has given me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm saved. And I know that I have forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to wander into something else or somewhere else. I'm going to stay here. I ask for forgiveness, and I keep moving forward. And I continue to work and my mind and my thought. And, and, and it's not about how I feel. Now, worship, music should not be about what I feel. The, uh, you know, everything about church and everything about God is not about what I feel. Because if it's about what you feel, Satan's going to make sure that you do not feel it. It's about what you know. We're sinners. We fall. We get back up. God dusts us off and he moves us forward. We stumble. We fall. But nonetheless, I stand justified. And it means that God has declared me righteous. Righteous means right. He's declared me right. In Philippians 3.9, it says this, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, I, there's nothing that I can do. I cannot be good by following the law. The law was set there to set us a standard, to show us that we cannot make it. It was a school teacher, a tutor. It was, it was set there so that it can show us that we are sinful people. We need justification by faith. And the way Abraham was justified. The law, I cannot do it by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not about what I do. So he says, I have this righteousness not on my own. Look at Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 again in your outline. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the transaction. This is the transaction of imputation. He, he took my sin and it was imputed upon him. And his righteousness was imputed upon me. And, and it is this, this great, grand transaction that takes place in the heavenlies and it takes place in your life and it takes place in your soul. And he's made you right. And what happened was very simply this, that on the cross, God treated Jesus Christ as if he committed all my sins. Not only my sins, your sins, the sins of the whole world. Can you imagine just the wrath of God being unleashed upon Jesus? one person? But here, God unleashed the wrath of the whole world upon Jesus Christ. He had to be a perfect sacrifice. And it was all placed upon him. God punished Jesus for all the sins of all people who would ever believe. So their sins were taken care of. God gave Jesus our sins and then turned around and gave us his righteousness. It comes down to this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed all those sins. He took my sins. He took those who would believe sins. Now, this is another part of this whole process, which is called limited atonement. I know a lot of people have a hard time with this as well, which I did as well. The, the limited atonement theology is this, is that, that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of those who would believe. And, and you see, you have those that say, no, no, but the Bible says he paid for the sins of all the world. All the world's sin has been paid for. Well, if that's the case, then we have to believe that because Jesus died for the sin of all the world, then that person, every person that Jesus Christ died for, must go to heaven. Must. Otherwise, his sacrifice was useless. How is it that some people are not going to get saved if he died for the, well, you know, you have to choose. Well, again, you have to come back and go through all that whole process that we just went through. If he died for the whole world, and I, say, for instance, I wasn't saved, and then I would die, and I would go to, I'd go to hell, 
I'd say, hey, God, wait, wait a minute. You know, this is double jeopardy. My sin's already been paid for. Jesus died for everybody's sin. That included me, too. So therefore, I, I, I don't belong here. Because what I remember, what the Bible teacher, my Sunday school teacher told me, is that he died for the whole world. For God so loved the world. That includes me. That includes me. That whoever believed, I believed. <laughs> I did. I mean, you know, I didn't walk it the way I should. I don't go to church all the time. That's the excuse that you get many times. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I don't go to church. I hate church. You know, whatever the case may be. You know, I'm going to do my life the way I want to do life. Nobody, not even God, can tell me how I can do life. You know, there is a belief in the Bible, in God, that James says that even the demons believe. And they shudder at the fact. There are a lot of so-called Christians that say they believe. They don't even shudder. Ah, we're good. He knows that I've done a lot of good things. He knows that when I get up there, I'm not going to be perfect. He knows, he knows, yeah, it's, it's okay as long as I can do my life the way I want to do life. Just don't bother me while I'm doing this, God. But when we get up there, we'll settle it. We'll square it away. And you're going to let me in because of all the good things that I have done. It's somewhat of a, uh, an idea that people have. I've done many funerals, and every single person that has died has gone to heaven. As if that's all you have to do is just die and go to heaven. And every person, doesn't matter who they are. It could be the vilest and the wicked sinner. and Oh, yeah, he's up there. God's letting him in. Or we can pray him in. Or we can get him up in there. But you see, when we think about what Jesus Christ did, his blood is sufficient. And if his blood is as powerful as we say it is and know it is, then if he died for everyone, and for those who believe, and the demons believe, as a matter of fact, I share this story with you from time to time. I, uh, you know, Jesus crossed the lake, and there was this man had these demons within him, legion. They were all these demons, and and when they saw Jesus, when the man saw Jesus, he ran to Jesus and he prostrated himself right before Jesus Christ, bowed down for him in the sense of worship, and he says to Jesus, "What have you to do with us, O Son of the Most High? Before the appointed time." His Christology was right. He knew who Jesus Christ was. His eschatology was right. There's something's going to happen to us. His, his, his understanding of God's omniscience was right. And, and his omnipotence was right. Cast us into those demons. This demon, or these demons, knew. And they believed who Jesus Christ was. But I can guarantee you, they're not going to be saved. You see, what a lot of people have is what I call demon faith. They have this faith that they, oh yeah, we believe just like the demons do. And they don't even shudder. This belief that for whosoever believeth in him, it's a life-changing, transforming exchange of my sin upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's righteousness upon me. That transformed. And the evidence of that, this is why James was saying this, and the evidence of this is that, you know, th there has to be fruit. There has to be action. Not that the action is going to save you, but there has to be evidence of that salvation. Jesus said, watch out for the tree that bears bad fruit. Only, good fruit could only bear good fruit. Bad fruit comes out of bad trees. Watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. Be careful. And so, Jesus Christ died for those whom he whom would believe there's a lot more to that than that you know but i understand that that limited atonement has there's there's even struggles within those that believe in predestination on how to get that how to how to understand that but that goes a lot deeper and uh, we can but that's just the, the scratch in the surface the last thing i want to share with you is those he made right he glorified when he justified you he made you right you're righteous those he made right, he glorified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And, and this incredible idea of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and it all comes down to the glorification. It's interesting how it's put in the past tense. You're already living in eternity. You're already there. If you are uh, saved, if you have committed your life to Christ, if you are Chosen, if you have been already repented and, and believed that what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you're there. 
And that cannot be taken away from you. And nobody is going to be left behind because you're already glorified. The only thing that's stopping us is this body. I, I couldn't save myself. I didn't save myself. I can't keep myself saved. This is a promise that God gave me. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just along for the ride. I can't lose it. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's this glory that's still, you know, all these things that we're going through. There's this glory that's going to be revealed to us. We're going to be glorified in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is this eternal glory, this eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us. And we can't get there on our, by our own self. And we can't get there on our own. Now, one of the things that I do want to clarify before we go any further, and we'll talk about this some more later, is that there is a thought of, which, which is called predestination. I've had people tell me, I can't believe that. I says, well, first of all, I, I want you to know that I'm glad that you said I, you know, because it's not a matter of what you believe. It's a matter of what the Bible says. Well, I don't think it works that way. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. I'm glad to know what you think. You know, I'm glad that you're saying that you don't think that, you know, but what does the Bible say? Well, I don't believe that. Well, I'm glad you, you, you say that you don't believe this. But what does the Bible say? I can tell you this one thing. The Bible does not say that God chooses some to go to heaven and he chooses others to go to hell. That's one of the biggest misnomers. They build up this argument, defend that. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says he's chosen those who are his. He doesn't choose. You are still responsible. You are still held accountable for your response. You are still held accountable for your action. You're held accountable for your decision. The gospel message is being proclaimed. And if you reject it, then you are responsible for that rejection. Well, how can that be? Well, you're, first of all, you're telling me that, that those are foreknown, they're, they're predestined, they're called, they're justified, and now they're glorified. And what about the rest of us? What about everybody else? Does that mean that they're... I, I don't know how God actually you know, squares that off. And I don't know how it is that he's going to hold those accountable that aren't predestined, that aren't foreknown. I, I, but I know that you are held accountable. We are held accountable for our decision. And, and you see, that's the part that, well, people like myself struggle with. But I know that the Bible holds us all accountable for our, our sin. And it's not that God is choosing some to heaven and some to hell. It's not this double predestination type of thing. Now, there's some people that will argue it, even in the predestination camp. But I do know that he holds everyone accountable. And what I do know, and what we all know, and what we should really believe, you know, actually build on, is the fact that if you have been called, if you have been saved, then let's work it out. Let's work, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. From the very beginning... God is creating for himself a bride, a church. He's creating for himself a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. And because he's doing this, it does not mean that we do not do evangelism. As a matter of fact, evangelism is a lot easier now. Because all I have to do is proclaim the word, the Holy Spirit does the rest. This is why we've had three revivals. Our last one is August 27th. And I pray that you invite people, bring people. I pray that you just come and attend and be a part of it. To, to help in whatever way that we might need some help. We're passing out Bibles. We're doing baptisms. And, and we just pray that you get involved in that. It doesn't mean that we just, okay, well, God's going to save whoever's going to save. <laughs> we are still responsible for that. Well, how does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because, first of all, God said to do it. <laughs> all right? Go and make disciples. New believers, just do it. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And another thing, too, is that I have the awesome privilege to be able to work in the field of God. Be a laborer right alongside him to bring together what it is that he's already preordained. It doesn't excuse us. We still ought to and need to bring that to a close. Because then Jesus Christ is going to return. And he's going to ask you, why didn't you? Why did you?
How come you didn't use the gifts that I gave you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I just was, didn't feel qualified. Good. Pastor Sal just told you he wasn't qualified either. Well, actually, his wife told you that. Good. Because I'm going to qualify the called. I'm not calling the qualified. I'm scared. What are you afraid of? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. You know, come up with all excuses you want. But we are called to do this. Let me ask you to stand. And as we go through the... This is going to come up throughout Ephesians. As I mentioned, it's going to come up some more. You know, the richness of redemption, which, which we'll talk about next week. The richness of redemption. You know, you have been redeemed. You've been paid for. You've been taken out of slavery and placed into the sonship of, of God's household. It, it, it should motivate us to, number one, love God more. Number two, do what he's called us to do. And I pray that we can grow together as we go together. Father in heaven, thank you once again for giving us this opportunity to come before you and just to hear your word. And Lord, I know this is a difficult topic to speak about and to even listen to. We have a lot of our own preconceived ideas and thoughts and notions of the way we've heard the gospel message proclaimed. I always thought it was my, my choice. I always thought it was the preacher's responsibility to convince me. I always thought it was only Billy Graham that can do that or a great glory. But Lord, this is your work from beginning to end. This has been your work from the very foundations of the world until this world is obliviated. And Father, I, I believe that. And I pray, God, that as we get a grasp on this a little bit more, hold on to it and grab onto it and run with it, Lord. And the things that we understand, that we just go ahead and take those with us, and those things that we don't understand as of yet, Father, I just pray that you help us through those. But Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity. Lead us this, this afternoon as we go our separate ways as you dismiss us from this place, but never from your presence, that we share life with our families and our friends, and we enjoy this Lord's Day, and that we return back to hear your message, hear your word again, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. May the Lord be with you. All right, we are dismissed. Come on over next door and have some uh, fellowship with us. Actually, we call it fellowshaping.